Hello, and welcome to episode 38 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with nine years' experience in Brazil and China. For this episode, I spoke to a correspondent for National Public Radio, Joanna Kakissis, in Athens, Greece. I try to say something about every podcast in the intro, a little bit about any themes that emerge. And the theme of this podcast is overwhelmingly about family. Joanna talks about growing up with Greek immigrant parents and the huge influence they had on her life. I mean, they must have had some impact if she's been covering Greece for more than a decade. She considers why she made the choices she did, first moving abroad to cover the Olympics in Greece for the Boston Globe, making it work, admittedly just barely at times, as a freelance foreign correspondent. Now with NPR, she roams around Eastern Europe, reporting well beyond Greece's borders. Joanna goes so far to ask, was it all worth it? The subject of what was left behind hangs over this story. What did her parents leave behind in Greece? What did she leave behind in the United States? Those parts of the interview really resonated with me, but I don't want to give you the impression it was all melancholy. Of course, we also talked about some great stories and the life of an NPR foreign correspondent, which I think is still the dream job for many journalists. And she shares some great recommendations in the lightning round at the end. Just one other note up top. We have one more episode coming out this year in two weeks' time, after which I'll go on hiatus for the month of December. I'm already looking ahead to next year and have an exciting wish list of guests. If there is someone you think would make a great guest, please let me know. Tweet at me at at foreignpod, send me an email at foreignpod at gmail.com, or leave a comment on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash foreignpod. So now, without further ado, here's my interview with Joanna Kakissis, a correspondent for NPR in Athens, Greece. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Joanna. I'm a fan of the podcast, and it's a pleasure to be on it. To start, if you could just set the scene for us, if you could tell us where you are geographically and mm -hmm. the physical space around you, what time it is, and a little bit about your last week of work. Okay. So I am in central Athens, where there are a lot of packed together apartment blocks with like, you know, the laundry swinging in the air, as the Athenians love to point out. Look, it's just so beautiful with the colorful laundry swinging in the air. I'm in between two neighborhoods, Kipseli and Galazzi, which are very, very built out. And I am in my apartment sitting on my big long table where I usually work. Sometimes I'll actually cut up my script and kind of move it around all over this huge table if it doesn't make sense narratively to me. And today is market day, so I went to the market this morning and got some fresh fruits and vegetables and then got some flowers, so that's nice. And this last week, I've been trying to pull together a couple of difficult stories that have been hard to do because we can't travel now with the coronavirus, so I have to do everything by phone. And I had a breakthrough in one of those stories, and so I'm feeling some measure of relief for that. <laughs> it's a very sensitive story that involved talking to very young people who are in danger right now. So it's been hard and it was emotional, but a, a translator and I were able to talk to this group of young people and we're happy. And actually the young people seem relieved that they can talk to somebody. That's great. And yeah. so do you normally, I can't imagine there's a bureau there. So you always have worked out of your apartment, I imagine. And yes. now it's just, you're even more trapped there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think all the NPR correspondents 
to some extent. I mean, some of them work in bureaus too, like Frank Langfit in London works in a bureau and he commutes. Although now, obviously, he's mostly working from home because of coronavirus like the rest of us. But a lot of the correspondents, a lot of people work out of their homes. Eleanor Beardsley has for years in Paris, and I do as well. So then let's get into more of the interview proper. This part is mostly about figuring out how you got to where you are today, and Mm -hmm. we like to start at the beginning. So if you could tell us where you were born, a little bit about what growing up was like, and if you showed any early interest in journalism. So I was actually born in Greece in a suburb called Iliupoli, the city of the sun. My dad was from the Peloponnese and my mom was from Crete and both of them from very poor families. My dad was orphaned when he was three and he had a really, really tough time growing up. He was actually a blacksmith when he was 10 and didn't go to high school until he was in his 20s while he was working like two or three other jobs. So for them, the fact that my dad graduated from college, even though he was in his 30s, he was much older than the other students, that was like such an accomplishment in his day. And my mother was very proud of him for this. And my mother was a nurse in Greece, and she was also proud of herself for having accomplished what she had. So they instilled in my sister and I a sense of like, you need to work really hard at whatever you do, and you'll get there. You're going to feel really fatigued by the time you reach your goal sometimes, but you can reach it. My parents hadn't intended to move to the U.S., but there's like a long version and a short version. I'll tell you the short version of the story of why they did. Basically, (laughs) my, my dad's younger brother had fallen in love with a woman from their village in the Peloponnese, and he couldn't live without her, so he passed himself off as a tailor and moved to South Dakota. And so suddenly we were in South Dakota when I was four. <laughs> That's when we moved there first. And then my dad, who was wait, in wait, wait, yeah. I didn't follow that. Uh, your okay, dad's brother. My dad's younger brother Panayoti okay. fell in love with a woman from their village. The woman okay. ended up moving to South Dakota with her family. Uh, okay, and then my uncle couldn't live without her, and he moved to South Dakota to be with her. And then all of a sudden, my dad, by his brother, had been talked into moving to South Dakota with us. (laughs) And so I moved to South Dakota when I was four, along with my family. I don't really remember it. I remember that I didn't like the milk on the airplane because it wasn't warm. And I remember (laughs) that my family was all crying. I do remember them crying, but I don't really remember anything else. Everything I remember really well is from the U.S. and from the Dakotas. So, yeah, my dad was an accountant in Greece, and he got a job working finance, basically, for hotels. And we ended up in North Dakota during the first oil boom there. He got a job there pretty quickly after we moved to the U.S. Yeah, and so that's where I grew up. I grew up in North Dakota mostly, and I graduated from high school there. And there was a school paper in my tiny little town of Williston, which is now known for fracking, but back then it was like a (laughs) town of 10,000. We were like the only Greek family in town, and everyone just called us the Greek family (laughs) because they never met a person from Greece before. And so there was a school newspaper, and nobody wanted to run it, and I was kind of a nerdy, sort of bookish kid, and so I said, oh, I'll run it, you know? So I wrote all the articles and edited all of my own stories. (laughs) I was like a one-woman, you know, or one-girl newspaper. And I just did it because I thought it would be a good way to learn about my community. And I was so shy and awkward when I was a kid that I thought this is the best way to interact with these tall, 
sort of impenetrable people <laughs> here in North Dakota. <laughs> uh, so that, that's how I ended up meeting so many people, not only people at my high school, but I would interview business owners. So my dad was really proud of me for becoming the one person newspaper <laughs> at the high school. I did eventually recruit other writers who were great. And I also recruited my best friend to write a bunch of snotty essays that often didn't get published because our <laughs> faculty advisor would say, that's just, that's just too much, Andrea. <laughs> so, so yeah, so that was how I got into journalism. And when I went to college... I studied political science in Russian. I minored in journalism. From the very beginning, I was at the college newspaper, too. What university was it? University of Minnesota. Oh, okay. That's where my older brother went. And, oh, yeah? Uh, yeah, my whole family lives in the Twin Cities now. They've all moved oh, gradually okay. over the years, and now they're all there. So I loved it there. I thought it was wonderful. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a great town. Did your parents keep up the connection with Greasewell? Did you go back a lot to visit or was it kind of more of an abstract thing your parents told you about? Well, yeah. I mean, my parents were really lonely. They found one family to be really good friends with in Williston who were Lebanese and they were like close enough to being Greek. And so they're like, you know, we'll <laughs> hang out with the Lebanese. We'd all cook together too. My family loved them. And my mom ended up working as a tailor in one of the, the family had clothing stores. But the Lebanese felt sort of like family, but they weren't Greek. Like, obviously, they couldn't speak Greek to them. They couldn't sing Greek songs to them that, like, both of my parents liked to sing. My dad was really into literature, and he wanted to discuss Greek literature with somebody. <laughs> you know, my mom was a nurse, but in Greece, she would finish, like, a technical school to become a nurse. And she wasn't as well-read as my father, as far as literature goes. So she found some of his wanting to go on and on about some book, like, Oh, God, again, George, you know, you're going to talk about that. So he was sort of craving his old sparring partners in Athens, where they would sit and talk about literature. And my mom missed, my mom was in a very well-known dance group here. Like, it was a dance group from Crete, and they would perform all over Greece. She missed dancing. She missed talking about dancing. She missed talking about the specific culture of Crete, the history. They have this, like, spoken word poetry called Mandinades, which she loved to do. And she was like, oh, you know, who's going to do spoken word poetry with me. No one, you know, because my husband's from Southern Greece and they don't do it there. And they felt lonely. It was expensive to call their family. So they hardly ever called. They would write letters. You know, my mom would write back and forth to her family and try to get some of these little poems in her letters. But it was very much growing up. That's what my sister and I always heard. We always heard about Greece. It was like this fairy tale place for us. My parents felt loved and they felt at home. It was really expensive to fly there and we were able to survive, but we weren't rich, you know. I mean, I went to the University of Minnesota because it was basically paid for with a combination of grants and scholarships. But my parents sort of recreated Greece inside our home, if that makes sense, because they missed it so much. For my parents, it was very much a connection that they felt that they had to keep up. We eventually did meet one other family in North Dakota who was Greek, and they came over for <laughs> Easter or for whenever they could for the weekend. They lived three or four hours away. But, you know, hey, we did find somebody eventually. My dad sort of found them by accident, but he was very happy when he found them. That's great. And then, yeah, what was college like? I mean, you said you studied... Russian. What did you want to do coming out of college and what was college like? So I used to read Russian literature in high school because I thought it was really good and sort of tragic in a way that nothing other than Russian literature is. 
I eventually did have friends in high school, but I didn't fit in. And so it was like I didn't fit in with the cheerleaders or the basketball players. Or I tried to play on the basketball team, but I'm very short. And I could never really make it past junior varsity. I know I didn't even make junior varsity. I just like I didn't even make that cut. I mean, and so and our high school was very much divided into jocks and like many high schools and cheerleaders and popular kids. And I didn't fit in anywhere. And I mean, nobody wanted to be part of the newspaper crowd, which was was only really involved me at the beginning. And so it was my escape was to just go and check out books from the library and read about like really complicated and sort of very dramatic places. And I think the drama, like the the need to read about sort of grim, dramatic places, to some extent may have come from my father because my dad never really told me bedtime stories. He would just tell me stories about his life as a kid because I was curious. I would always ask him, like, when you were my age, what were you doing? And he'd be like, oh, yeah, I was an ironsmith. I was, <laughs> like, working hard labor as a 10-year-old. <laughs> and so I think that as a kid, I started to think that that's drama, that's life, and that's what I should seek out. And some of the grimmest stories are in Russian literature. So, and they were also really beautifully written. I mean, that goes without saying. I mean, with some of the most wonderful writers are Russian. So I, that was the reason I studied Russian. I didn't really have any grand plans to move to Russia and become a political correspondent or something like that. I always viewed journalism as a way to learn about what was around me at the time. And so I felt like if I eventually had the opportunity to go to Russia, that I would go there. And my dad encouraged me and my mom encouraged me. But when I was in my first year in school, my dad died very unexpectedly. My dad was born with a heart condition. And he had been told since he was basically you know, 19 when it was diagnosed that he was going to die. And he told me when I was little that he might die. And I had also had that in my head. Oh, he, he might die. You know, I have to expect it. But when he did die, it just felt like the end of the world because my dad was the person I talked to about my career, about my plans in life. And it just felt like the end of all those plans. And, you know, my mom took it really hard. So I had to sort of start over. Like my mom and my sister moved in with me. I moved out of the dorms and we all moved into an apartment. And we started to think, okay, how are we going to move forward? So I said, okay, going to rush under these circumstances isn't really practical. You know, you have to take care Mm -hmm. of your family. So I just kept working at the paper and trying to finish my degree. But I became more and more attached to the idea of Greece, probably because I missed my dad so much. So my mom ended up staying in Minnesota after college, and she lived there a long time, had a very happy career there at a department store, made a lot of friends. My mom died four years ago, but she was a very, very, she's a wonderful, friendly, bubbly person. So everybody loved my mom. And my sister became an archaeologist and moved here almost immediately after college. I just thought after this, I'm going to try to figure out what I want to do. I came here and took an internship at a state-run news agency. But my job like was just pointless at the time. It was like basically editing kind of incomprehensible copy. And mm. I felt like, why am I doing this out of college? Just, my brain's not working. The funniest thing that I did was I would have to change every dateline that said Istanbul to Constantinople. <laughs> and I still <laughs> think about that because it was like, wow, I actually did have to do that. <laughs> and I, I just thought it was so funny at the time. And I, when I complained, to the news director, he was just very angry. He was like, where's your patriotism? And I was like, but 
but it's not Constantinople. It's not called Constantinople. I was like totally confused. Um, and so after that experience, I came back and took a long internship with Minneapolis newspaper when they used to have a Washington bureau back in the day. And then I went to graduate school. And after graduate school, I just got a job at a really good newspaper in North Carolina, the News and Observer. That was the time I got hired, the Pulitzer Prize winning newspaper. And we were Pulitzer finalists. I was on a team that was a Pulitzer finalist for breaking news one of the years, my first or second year when I was there. And I thought I was just going to stay in, in newspapers. But then what happened is I got the opportunity to cover the Olympics. The Boston Globe said, how about a freelance column for the 2004 Olympics? And I did. I jumped at that. I mean, I thought it would be really fun. It was my opportunity to be a foreign correspondent. But the newspaper wouldn't let me take leave. We had a very strict editor there at the time who wouldn't let anybody take leave even for a fellowship. And so so I quit. And it felt horrible <laughs> to do it at the time because I loved my job and I loved mm-hmm. my colleagues and I loved North Carolina. But I felt like I had to take the risk if I wanted to cover this. And so the column was fun. I really enjoyed writing for another place. But it was hard to be a freelance foreign correspondent. And like the first year was great because I had a lot of assignments. I was with the New York Times and with the Boston Globe. And I mean, at the times it was the International Herald Tribune, sorry. But after that, it was very, very hard. And so I started to take a series of fellowships to try to figure out what I was going to do next. And most people, when they become freelance foreign correspondents these days, they're much younger than I was when I made the leap. And it's almost better to do it that way because your expectations are pretty low (laughs) because you're like starting out and you're just out of college and you're like, I'll do anything. But when when you're already an established journalist, it really galls you when you have to, for example, edit really bad copy somewhere and get paid very little money for it because it's a local English language newspaper. And that's not right for me to feel either because that's the situation that I find myself in. I just have to make the best of it. But I did feel those things and it felt hard because I felt like I had this career that was going somewhere and then now I have to do whatever I can to stay afloat. And the reason that I made those choices and I would work whatever job I could find was because I didn't have the money to do what many other freelance foreign correspondents around me were doing, which was just going to countries, reporting, and they got paid $200 a piece. That was okay because they had savings or they had a high-earning spouse or they, their parents had a lot more money than mine did. And that's sort of, I think, the unspoken ugly truth behind freelance foreign correspondence is that it doesn't make it easy for people who don't have money or a high-earning spouse or some sort of, like, big financial safety net. You don't want to take risks because you think I'll be financially ruined. Or if I get hurt somewhere and my family has to rescue me, will that wipe them out financially forever? So I didn't take a lot of risks. And I think as a freelance foreign correspondent, you have to take risks. Or as a way to keep going, I had a couple of fellowships in a row. I went back to the U.S. and was at the University of Colorado on an environmental fellowship that was wonderful, an environmental journalism fellowship. And then I went to Bangladesh on a fellowship after that and did some reporting for the New York Times on climate migration. And then I came here and completely fell into radio. <laughs> you know, I was, I, had a, I was working for kind of a freelance contract with Time Magazine and it was just the beginning of the crisis. And the reason I came back here is because it felt safe. Like I felt like if I 
went back home to where my mom was living in Minneapolis, it would feel like a defeat. Or if I went back and begged for my job back in North Carolina, it would feel like a defeat. But here, at least, I had an apartment owned by my family. I didn't have to pay rent. I could live without spending a lot of money. And I was going to try again. Initially, I was writing pieces for time. And for whoever would take a piece from me, I wrote for McClatchy, I wrote for the New York Times, I wrote for whoever would take my pictures, basically. And then I started to do pieces for Marketplace, the business radio program. And those were basically, initially, they were just two ways where I would just talk to a host so I didn't really need radio equipment. Mm-hmm. And then I started to do pieces. It was hard. It was really hard transition to go from print to radio. You must have been all self-taught if you were already in Greece at that point. I didn't, yeah, I didn't get any training. Actually, that's not true. I got some training. I want to give one shout out to, a big shout out actually, to a guy that I met, a former NPR science reporter who I met in Boulder, Colorado during my environmental fellowship, who encouraged me to at least explore radio. And with his help, I had actually done one radio piece from Bangladesh. It took almost two months to edit. (laughs) Like he basically walked me through it, but I had at least used a recorder. I had been in a studio. I had been under the guidance of this great editor, David Barron. He used to be the science editor at PRI's The World as well. And he's also got several books out. He's just a wonderful journalist. That's the only training I've ever gotten in radio was from him. Because with the Greek economic crisis, everybody just wanted you to turn something in. And so I took what few skills that I had and I started to try to pull whatever stories together however I could. And then NPR would hear my pieces on Marketplace. And then they called me and they said, would you like to do pieces for us as well? And I said, sure. And the reason that NPR even considered me at all was because of the Rome correspondent, Sylvia Pajoli, who was my mentor at NPR. And she encouraged NPR to take a chance on me, even though I was like no, no radio experience really, other than this very guided process with David Barron. So mm-hmm. thanks to Sylvia, NPR started taking my pieces. And that's how I got into radio. And now I mean, I still say I'm still learning because I still feel that way because I still haven't gotten any training. I mean, lots of people get training in this business, but I haven't. I mean, when I come back home, it's usually for short periods and there there haven't been any seminars I can take here. So I'm still the self-taught NPR reporter and everything I've learned, I've learned really from David Barron, from Sylvia and from a really fantastic editor at NPR named Martha Wexler who is just the gold standard of editors. If it hadn't been for Martha, I probably wouldn't have lasted because she is such a fantastic editor for scripts and for sound, and she sort of whips us all into shape. So <laughs> That's a great story. So to, to back up and get some sense of a chronology, like how long were you at the newspaper in North Carolina? I was there for seven years. Okay, wow, that's quite a chunk of time. And what was the Pulitzer finalist for? What was the story? So it was Hurricane Floyd. There was a bunch of flooding after this hurricane named Floyd. And North Carolina was very hard hit with the flooding. And we had like entire towns that were submerged. There was a town called Princeville, was a majority black town in North Carolina that was completely underwater. So I had done some reporting in Princeville and had gone to another town and gone with a group to look for a missing child for a little girl. 
And those two stories are included in the entry, my report from Princeville and my report for the search for the child, along with some other wonderful stories from my colleagues. But we didn't win. We, we were finalists. But I remember how excited the editor was. <laughs> like, he, you know, he'd gotten the call. He's like, we're finalists. Woohoo! You know, I mean, he, I know he was excited about the prize and I, I suppose everybody was. But I learned a lot about how to report about people from that particular assignment because I think when you report on somebody who's damaged by something or disadvantaged, like because often we're reporting from a position of privilege, and especially in the foreign correspondent world, when we report on people who don't have the same privileges as we are, we, ha- we tend to exotify people and play up the drama or play up the pain. And I felt myself doing that. Like I felt it. I thought, why am I doing this? Am I doing this for dramatic effect? And I started to think like, you know, I'm talking to this woman and she's a woman, you know, she's a flesh and blood human who's looking for her kid and she's right across from me. Do I need to make this more dramatic than it is? It is so dramatic. Just the fact that she's in tears in front of me and she's lost her kid. Right. So I felt like that was the very first time that I'd ever really thought about that, even though I had been a college reporter and a high school reporter. It made me realize that I was blind to that. And my family was obviously not a privileged family either, but I still didn't see it either. When you're okay and you're reporting on somebody who's not okay, you don't need to dramatize that for a fact. You don't need to turn it into some trope. You can just try to listen to that person and think about the details and try to communicate that story as humanely and as humanly human scale, I guess, as possible. So yeah, I felt like sometimes when I would read our coverage, I'm really proud of the coverage from the newspaper, but the New York Times often had pieces that I thought were a lot more subtle, or, or the Washington Post. I would read how the big national papers were covering this, and I would think, okay, I need to tone it down because it doesn't need to be that dramatic. That was a big learning experience for me, being on that team and thinking about how we were covering people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was going to say, yeah, it reminds me of an experience because I worked at the Myrtle Beach Sun News oh. and planes would crash in Myrtle Beach, like small prop planes, like two or three in the, I was only there for a little more than a year. And I remember there was one plane that crashed and it was these two grandparents and this granddaughter. And I had to get in touch with the parents. So this woman's parents had just died and her daughter had just died all oh, in the same day. And like, yeah, I mean, coming out of college, you're kind of this mission-driven, like it's about the peace and you don't necessarily think about the people as people. And like, that's when I realized, you know, I kind of need to take a light touch with this. Let them talk to the extent they want. Don't like, you know, you've got to be sensitive in these situations where when you're 23, like I was, you're not <laughs> necessarily going in like that. But If you don't mind me asking, how did it feel to you when you had that realization? Did you feel kind of bad? Um, Yeah, no, I mean, I I felt bad, yeah, I would say. It's hard not to in that situation. And I mean, at least I was young and it's not like I had that many experiences to reflect back on to be like, oh, I was really insensitive in this situation. I mean, there were probably some times when I was covering the cop's beat at the university paper where I think a high school student got stabbed to death or something like that. And, you know, there are instances that maybe I could have been more sensitive, but it's yeah, it a hit, good thing it, to learn early. Yeah, as I was going to say, it sort of hits you like a ton of bricks because I felt like I was ashamed that I was like pushing for 
maximum, you know, like when I was reporting, I was like, okay, how can I get the best quote? I just remember talking to this woman whose four-year-old daughter was missing and she was just crying and I could feel her breath because she was just heaving. And I thought like, what am I doing? What kind of a monster am I? Like I had like, this is, you know, and so I just, I stopped that little, you know, get the story voice stopped in my head and I just started to listen to her. I just almost like let go of the situation. But afterwards when I went home and I typed it up and you know, the story turned out well, but it just made me feel bad that I ever saw a person like that and that I had probably been doing it for many years. So yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had to do it all over the phone, which was even worse. But by that point, I mean, newspapers were at that stage. They couldn't pay to travel, even though this family only lived in North Carolina and we were in South Carolina. It was you know, bridge too far. Don't you uh, love the Carolinas though? They're so great. <laughs> it was a great place to start out. Myrtle Beach, like you could get all different types of stories. It's the kind of thing where newspapers were crumbling by that point. So I was yeah. looking for an escape boat from the, from the start. I wish I had enjoyed it a little bit more, but uh, I'm glad I had that kind of classic local newspaper experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, so I guess, I mean, you stayed there seven years. Uh, it wasn't quite clear why you made the jump to be the freelancer because you were, it sounds like you were almost immediately in deep and in a tough situation as freelance foreign correspondent. I mean, was it because you saw it as if you don't take this chance now, you might not get it again? Or is it because yeah. you missed Greece and wanted to reconnect with that or... I actually think the Greece thing was secondary. I just thought if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it because I'm going to start like the working my way up the newspaper food chain and maybe I'll do it at some point, but it just seemed like a long way off. And I thought, why not? Why not make that decision now with the 2004 Olympics happening? And also the fact that Greece, this role that Greece played in my life obviously was a force too. I felt like if I moved there, I could connect with my family, like my dad's brother and friends and his cousins and my cousins. But I think that when I came here, I realized that I actually didn't fit in at all. And they were very different for me. They were much more conservative. They had very different views of the world. And so I was kind of a pariah. I mean, I was very close to my uncle. I'm still very close to my uncle, although now he's 90 and he's sadly starting to forget who I am. He's got early forgetfulness, I guess, at 90. And I don't see him very often because of the pandemic. I'm afraid to see him. But anyway, I mean, the rest of the family, I never really made very strong connections with anybody here among my family. So that was probably a mistake to think I'm going to move to Greece and I'm going to fit in immediately. And I didn't expect to feel so out of place, though. And I still do. I still feel totally out of place. But I've just gotten used to it now at this point. So what I was hoping to do is to be able to finance trips to go traveling and reporting around the region. The problem was that you don't really get paid well for stories and often outlets don't pay for your travel. So that was something that I could really never do. I did it a little bit and then I quickly realized I would go broke doing it. So that's why I did whatever I could from here. And then once in a while would take a trip somewhere. I mean, it was hard. It's easier now. I feel like it's like the career path now has changed Since I made the leap in 2004, I feel like more and more young people are going out there, sometimes just out of college and, you know, learning the language, going and embedding somewhere and going from there. And I think they're very successful at it. 
unfortunately, the outlets still pay really crappy rates. <laughs> so it's really, it's still really hard unless you have some sort of financial safety net. But I feel like more people who aren't particularly wealthy are making it work. So that's really impressive to me to see that. Yeah. You have to have a certain appetite for risk. I mean, I did a little bit of freelancing for a year here and there. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, I made a trip to Myanmar and Mm -hmm. maybe I broke even, maybe (laughs) like, (laughs) you know, getting paid like $150 for two stories in the Atlantic and like $250 for one in foreign policy. Like mm, I probably lost a little bit of money, honestly. (laughs) But uh, so I wasn't doing a ton of that. I do know freelancers who once it gets going, they make it work and they do these incredible trips and things like that. But I just feel like it required so much investment up front to get to that point and you have to mm. be willing to take a shot at it and spend the money up front and hope it works well, and, out. And you know, a lot of us don't have that money to spend up front. That's the point. Or if we do have it, it goes pretty quickly with the economics of freelancing involved. I mean, I see so many people just give up on freelancing and really promising young journalists because they can't afford it. So in most of the people that I still meet who do it long term, I'm not saying all of them, but I'm saying most of them are people who have money, who have property, who have a spouse that supports them. And I'm not saying that even those folks are good journalists, but it's far less stressful when you have some safety net that can catch you if like a risky story doesn't pan out or if you don't break even. And I guess to get back to the chronology, so how long have you been in Greece at this point? So I came back the second time in 2010. So I've been here 10 years and most of that time reporting for NPR. The first like three or four years, I also reported for time. I had a regular contract with them and also did, like I said, some reporting for the New York Times and for McClatchy, for foreign policy, for Politico, for lots of outlets and for Marketplace and then a couple of stories for the world. But, you know, NPR was requesting more and more stories and I just couldn't keep up anymore. So I just said, okay, I'm yours. And I just started filing full time for NPR. Cool. Like 2015, around 2015. Okay. And so your title is contributing editor, is that right? No, contributing correspondent. Correspondent. So correspondent. because I'm not I'm not on staff. I'm essentially a permalancer, like a full-time freelancer. But I get assigned I mean before the pandemic I was sent all over Europe to report. I would fill in for my colleagues. They treat me like a colleague. The other reporters who are on staff. And the editors trust me and give me good assignments. So even though I don't get the benefits of being on staff, and there are some real downsides to that, NPR does pay its freelancers well. It's not like other outlets that pay them a ridiculously low amount of money for a lot of work. <laughs> and you have some freedom to take vacation, obviously, whenever you want and things like that. But there are downsides to essentially doing work for one outlet as a freelancer. Okay. And then before we get into the next section about stories, is there anything else you want to talk about before we move to that? No, I mean, I feel like, especially in the last two to three years, basically since 2017, NPR has been great about sending me to other places, like to other parts of Europe. I've filled it in Jerusalem. I filled it in Istanbul. And I've been all over Europe. I feel like they've been ideal in some ways as an employer if you're a freelancer. 
as regards to what assignments are handed out. I just wanted to emphasize that, that I professionally feel very fulfilled with the type of assignments I get because before the pandemic, I felt very much like if I pitched a story anywhere in Europe, NPR would seriously consider it and often approve it. And they pay for your travel? Yeah, I wouldn't That's take great. an assignment. I would never take an assignment if it with anyone if it didn't pay travel. I mean, I've turned down work by big outlets because they say, well, we can only pay $500 of expenses. And I'm like, okay, well, you want me to go on a week-long reporting trip? That's not going to work. I mean, because Europe's <laughs> expensive. It's not like there are other parts of the world where it's not so expensive. The Balkans actually isn't that expensive. But if you say, well, let's do the reporting trip in Hungary or in Germany, which is expensive, it can cause some real problems. It's, I cannot afford to take an assignment in which my travel is not covered my expenses, whether it's a travel or a fixer or whoever. Yeah. Right. I guess that's one thing I forgot to ask about, which seems kind of obvious is, do you speak Greek? Did you learn Greek growing up? Oh, yeah, I do speak Greek. And I learned it because my dad held Greek school at our house two days a week, two hour classes with my sister and I. He was a teacher and we were the students. And at home, if I spoke English to my dad, he would pretend like he didn't understand me. (laughs) So he forced us to speak Greek, basically. So even though we had virtually no Greeks surrounding us, we had one family, my dad did not want us to not know the language. And here, I mean, the thing is, I have a very heavy accent on my Greek, so everyone, without fail, where are you from? You know, is the question that Mm -hmm. everyone asks me. But at least I can communicate with people. That's what I'm like, thanks, Dad. (laughs) Thanks, Baba. (laughs) That's great, yeah. So how does that work? Because like you said, you, for example, had a translator, but I imagine that wasn't for... for No, not for Greece. No, I mean, in like some countries like Belgium or the Netherlands, you can sort of work without one because so many people speak English. But like in Hungary, if you go outside of Budapest, very few people speak English. And we have a great freelance producer there who helps us with translation and fixing. And then I've gotten to know so many of them, like all over the Balkans. I've built a very nice network of my colleagues colleagues, the freelance producers in Serbia and in Montenegro and in Slovenia. There's a really good guy in Slovenia. And <laughs> these little there's these little countries, how often do you go there, Joanna? Not very often. <laughs> but I found people in case we need them. And I've reported in Poland, I've reported in Germany. I filled in for my colleague for Frank Langfin in London a few times. Obviously there there I don't need a translator. So it really depends on the place. And then when I fill it in bureaus, like the London Bureau has a full time producer. In Jerusalem, there are part-time producers. So they also help a little bit with logistics and translation. I mean, I speak a little bit of German, which I've completely forgotten. And I've sadly forgotten much of my Russian too. Mm. But I think it's just a matter of brushing up on both of those languages and I'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So to get into stories, I like to first ask, what is a story that got away? A story that you wanted to do, but you couldn't because it didn't come off for whatever reason. You couldn't convince an editor or get the interview or it never got past the idea stage for whatever reason. Does anything come to mind? So I've covered migration a lot. Essentially, migration is in some ways a big subbeat for me. And I was the lead reporter on the 2015 Great Migration to Europe for NPR. I led the reporting on that. And I met so many people during that time and almost all of them ended up in Germany. And I wanted to know how they fared and how they changed the country primarily. 
I haven't been able to do as many of those stories as I would have liked. And one of the stories that I had been working on in some ways for years, because I knew the family for years, was the story of Syrian doctors basically becoming the new face of the rural doctors in Germany. At one point, like 2017 or 2018, the largest ethnic group outside of the European Union who were doctors in Germany were Syrians. And a lot of them came over from Syria on special visas because Germany needs healthcare workers and they need good doctors. And Syrian doctors are very, very good. They're very well trained. And I knew the family of one of these doctors. The mom and the two younger brothers had come over as refugees. And the oldest son, who was in medical school, who was a very, very good student, decided he was going to stay in Damascus in the middle of a war to finish his degree because he didn't want to come over as a refugee. He wanted to come over as a doctor. And his mother was worried about him the whole time. And she was like, are you sure you want to do this? And he's like, it's either I come and I'm a refugee for several more years and maybe I have to give up on my dream or I come over as a doctor. And he learned German in his basement. You know, like he was hiding in the basement basically and finished his degree, graduated with really good marks and is now a doctor in rural Germany, a very well-liked doctor, I should say, too. So I've spent all this time with him, you know, and I know him and I know his family. And then at the very last minute, I was writing the piece up and I was so excited about it. And we were organizing a photographer and everything to go follow him around. And he said, I I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this story. And I I have to say, I was very upset. I was like, my my heart just sank. And I tried to talk him out of it. And then finally, he just said, look, I'll tell you why. My wife goes back and forth to Damascus because her parents are ill. And I don't want somebody from the government to read an article about me or hear a story about me and have any excuse to arrest her. And that's the reality in Syria. You don't know why people get arrested and for whatever reason. And this young man was really worried about that. And so... I kind of half-heartedly tried to say, can we not use your name and can we adjust your voice? But he just kept saying, no, no, no. And finally, the story just whittled down to nothing. You know, without the doctor, what did I have? I had no story. (laughs) I had his supervisor who was full of effusive praise. I had a couple of his patients who loved him. I had the beautiful scene from the town, from this little town in Germany. But I didn't have him. And so I had to kill it. And that was two months of work. So that hurt. But on the other hand, I didn't want to do anything to put anybody in danger. That's, again, the downside of being a freelancer is that if I had done this as a staffer, it would have still hurt. My editors would have been like, oh man, that sucks. But because everyone wants to hear their pieces on the air and they want to think, okay, we're paying for her because she's getting these pieces on the air. (laughs) But it wouldn't have hurt as much because when a piece that you're pulling together doesn't come together... You have to eat it. You know, you have to eat the finances. And when you're a freelancer, it hurts a lot more. So that did hurt my finances, I have to be honest. But at the same time, I'm sorry that I haven't done that story. I don't regret not pushing him because I don't want to make anybody, especially in that kind of situation where they fear for the well-being or the life of their spouse or somebody they love, I would never put any kind of pressure on somebody in that position. But at the same time, it feels like it was going to be such a beautiful story. 
and it was going to say something about Germany, it said something about the Syrians, some of the Syrians who were coming there. Like the face of the rural doctor in Germany is no longer like this young German medical school grad. It's a Syrian guy. There were so many Syrians at this one clinic. And I remember the supervisor was saying, they're great doctors and they're so hardworking. Yeah, but that story never happened. <laughs> yeah, that's a shame. And the thing is, I also had tape. His mother recorded when he arrived for me. Like, I had been following this family for many years. In terms of tape, as a radio reporter, I had beautiful scenes. And so it made it so much harder for me to walk away from it. Do you think you'll ever be able to revive it? I mean, because there are some of these projects out there that people follow certain families or people for a decade, you know, these kind yeah. of, I Adrian guess Adrian Nicole LeBlanc kind of <laughs> narratives. Do you know, do you know Adrian Nicole LeBlanc? No. Who's that? She's a narrative journalist. She writes books, but she followed a group of basically teenagers or I think they were, were they all from Puerto Rico? I can't remember, but they were in New York and she followed them for like 12 years. And one of them actually said to her at one point, are you ever going to go away? <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, but like, but she wrote this a fantastic book called Random Family, if you want to read it. But that's why I always think like, will I turn into Adrienne Nicola Blanc with the Syrian family? Like, are you ever going to actually write anything, Joanna? Go away. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so the next story is one you're proud of. If you can pick a story you're proud of, it can be from any point in your career, and just tell us a little bit about what it was about and the process of doing it from start to finish. There are many stories I'm proud of. I'm just going to quickly reference, there was one story that I did for the New York Times in Bangladesh on environmental refugees that I'm super proud of. And that was a long time ago, and that was before I was in radio. But these stories where you can get right to ground level reporting and get to know people and feel as much as you can as an outsider, what they're going through. I felt like that put the issue of environmental and climate migration into some kind of perspective for me. But the whole thought that I prepared for my favorite stories, I am really proud of the recent three-part series that I did on Uyghurs in Turkey. And I'm really proud of that story because it was so hard to get. It was essentially, I had read something in, I think it was in a Wire report, in a really good one. It may have even been Reuters. <laughs> I don't remember now. About the situation facing Uyghurs in Turkey, that it had once been a haven, and that wasn't anymore. And it alluded to a lot of problems that they were having with police stopping them. And people weren't named in the piece, but they had first names and stuff. So I thought this is going to be a hard story to get. But if Uyghurs don't feel safe in Turkey, which is where they've been fleeing since 1952, then where are they going to feel safe? And this is a country that until 2018, even 2019, was criticizing China for how they treated Uyghurs. So Turkey sort of did an about face and stopped the public criticism of Beijing and started to mistreat the thousands and thousands of Uyghurs who had come to Istanbul seeking some sort of safe haven. And I know you know a lot about China, so I don't want to sound like I'm China-splaining <laughs> because I, I've <laughs> actually never been to China. <laughs> but I was really 
shocked, I guess is the best word, at how much of a neighborhood, actually two different neighborhoods, how much of a foothold the Uyghurs had in Istanbul. Because you go to these neighborhoods and it's all Uyghur shops and Uyghur schools and bakeries and everybody on the street is Uyghur. There was even like a Uyghur karate club that I went to and I went to and I met this wonderful young woman. So I was like, wow, if they're starting to feel uncomfortable here... You know, what does that mean? And I just wanted to find out what exactly was happening. So that took a long time. Again, this is where if you find a great producer or a great translator, somebody who's got a link to the community that you're trying to talk to, it makes all the difference. And so my partner in the story was a guy named Samer John Saidi, who's a Uyghur who grew up in Denmark. And thanks to him, we got 12 really, really long interviews with people and about another eight more shorter ones, basically all saying the same thing, that once there was some documented speaking out against China for these people were like at a protest or one woman had a shop where she had anti-China t-shirts. A guy wrote a book of anti-China poems. Like shortly thereafter, they were arrested by the Turks. They were all told the same thing. Someone has complained about you. Everyone had the same exact wording from the Turkish police, thrown into jail and then taken to a deportation center and threatened with deportation. And of course, they were all terrified that they were going to get sent to China. And a few people were deported, but they were deported to Kazakhstan. Was it Kazakhstan? I can't remember where the... forgetting where. <laughs> uh, I know what or you're talking Tajik- about. There it was, was Tajikistan. Tajikistan. Sorry, Tajikistan. It was Tajikistan. Yeah. In Tajikistan, the group that had been deported from Istanbul and from another city, not just from Istanbul, had ended up in Tajikistan and then were almost immediately deported to Beijing. They were like at the airport and then, okay, now you're going to Beijing. And I spoke to the sister of one of the women who had been deported, and she said that her mother called her and said, I have to take care of your sister's kids because they've suddenly shown up here, and I think your sister's in jail. So the sister ended up in jail. The sister that had been deported from Turkey ended up in jail and probably in a camp. was never able to verify where she ended up. And it was just all based on what the sister told me and what the mother told the sister, which is she's been taken by the Chinese police, and I think she's either in jail or at a camp. But it was just really interesting and devastating to hear these stories because you want to feel safe somewhere. And Turkey is the place where they felt the safest. The Turks see them as brothers and sisters. Their language is similar. They felt like they could practice their religion openly. And like I said, I was just like, wow, look at these neighborhoods. It's like, you know, you wouldn't know you were in Istanbul. So those stories, I learned a lot from them, but they were really unsettling for me. Because an immigrant, you never really feel settled anywhere. You know, talking to these folks, I felt like, oh, they finally feel settled somewhere. And they feel safe. And that was more important than feeling settled, is they feel safe. And to suddenly now not know when you're going to get dragged out of your house because you've protested outside the Chinese embassy or the Chinese consulate in Istanbul, that's troubling. So those stories that I did were really interesting for me and Samarjan as well. And you said it was a three-parter. So how did you structure it? So the first piece was structured around the arrests and being sent to these detention centers and deportation centers. And it was basically around the story of one guy who was a poet, because he's the only guy who would give his full name, and he didn't mind being photographed. There were many, many other stories, but 
most people were too afraid to be photographed or to give their full names. So the first story was structured around him and what he went through. And the second story was about a group of children who were essentially living in a boarding school. And they'd come with their parents to Istanbul and their parents had gone back either to close up a business or to go fetch another family member or do something back home. And then the Chinese arrested them. So the kids were stranded in Turkey without parents and they were all living in the school. And so I spent a lot of time with these three little boys, but mostly with one of them because he's the one who talked the most. (laughs) But all three of them, they were friends, but all three of them were missing their parents. And the boy that talked to me the most, uh, Nurzat, he had a picture of his dad. It's just him and his dad and and there's that he was like wearing this yellow shirt and he had these big sunglasses in the picture with his dad and he's hugging his dad like typical picture where you're hugging your dad with you know the dad has the belly and you're like oh my dad you know I'm so excited and he put it in his locker every night and they would take it out every morning and talk to the picture that was like his ritual you know he was like 10 10 or 11 and he's just a little kid and so he described everything very meticulously. What had happened to him, what happened to his dad, what he thought happened to his dad, what happened to him, how they initially sent him to Egypt to not be captured, as he, as he put it, by the Chinese. And then in Egypt, how they were run out of Egypt, and then they had to flee to Turkey, and his parents never showing up. And it was really hard for him. And yet he was so, I'm going to tell you everything. (laughs) You know, he wanted to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So he was such a wonderful little kid, but I actually thought it was really taxing for him too, even though he said he wanted to talk about it. I think he was also sad because it was kind of this double-edged sword for Nerzat because he wants to talk about this with somebody, but he needs to be talking to like maybe a child psychologist or something because his teachers all have missing family members. As soon as they start talking about it, they start to cry. Like no one in his community can talk about disappeared people because everyone has a disappeared relative. And then talking to me, and I have a million questions that a Uyghur would never have because they would kind of inherently understand the situation. So even though I think he liked talking about it, I think talking to a reporter probably wasn't what he would wanted, you know, <laughs> he probably yeah. wanted to talk to somebody who understood his situation. So I was really happy that he let us spend the day with him. And we went back again and talked to him when we had follow-up questions. And he was like, all right, I'll leave my spicy noodles to come talk to you. <laughs> he was very <laughs> mad about his leaving his spicy noodles. And then the third story was built around how people in Turkey who have missing family members were coping with the fact that Turkey didn't want them talking about it. So what do you do when you're trying to find information about your family, but Turkey wants you to be quiet about it so as not to enrage Beijing? And that story was built around fundamentally three people, but my favorite one was the girl who started doing martial arts. She's a teacher now. She teaches martial arts, but that was a way she coped with losing her dad. He disappeared in China, and she was so upset about it that the only thing that made her feel better was kickboxing. And she joined a fight club and then start, decided to start her own class and would teach other girls how to defend themselves. So yeah, so those were the three stories. Yeah, wow. I will say Uyghurs are kind of a recurring theme on the podcast. I feel like I've talked about them with probably five guests, Um, which is fine. I just like, I remember because every single time I put in the intro, like for those that don't know, Uyghurs are, and explain it because yeah, I mean, even just hearing it, you might not know how it's spelled or might not be familiar. And I mean, it's just such a crazy situation, I feel like, because it is such a huge thing rounding up. I mean, I believe it's millions of people putting them in Mm. camps. 
And how is it not more in focus? Because, yeah, these people, if they are disappeared and sent back to China, they will probably never, ever escape. Like, they'll be sent to one of these camps. They'll be indoctrinated. They'll be put mm-hmm. to work. And the only way to get out of it would be to leave the country and they won't be able to leave the country. Like, their passports will be seized and things like that. It's a wild situation. And it's an important issue to highlight. So it's good, even if it's on five out of 35 episodes, I feel like it's still an underexposed story. Okay, I guess we'll move on to the lightning round next, which is the more (laughs) fast-paced questions. But feel free to answer at whatever length you like, short or long. Do you feel ready? Yeah. So the first question is, what is a must-read publication you look at almost every day for work? Oh, that's easy. The New York Times. Uh, I shouldn't say that because I work for NPR, but (laughs) the New York Times is great. I read the New York Times every day. And I also have in the last, well, probably last year, I've been reading The Atlantic every day. Ed Young has helped me understand the pandemic like no other writer has. But even before that, I was really attracted to the kind of coverage that they did, deep dives into Central Europe and Eastern Europe and understanding how the East-West divide in Europe works. It's a very smart publication. And then what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch whatever medium, just for fun. I'm a pretty avid listener of podcasts. So I listen to This American Life. I listen to Radio Lab. I love Radio Lab. And I love, love, love our podcast, Rough Translation at NPR. Gregory Warner is the host of that. And he does such smart stories. What's the best journalistic article piece, again, whatever medium you have consumed recently, and it can't be from NPR? There's so many, but I think like the story that stuck with me the longest, even though I actually read it last year, is The Jungle Prince of Delhi that Ellen Berry did. I liked it so much because it was also very instructive of being a journalist. It's sort of like she was a character in that story too, obviously, because she had formed this bond with the guy who's living basically not in reality, but he was trying to hide his family's secret. But he had also bought into the fantasy that his mother had espoused. So I thought that piece was really pitch perfect in so many ways. And the other piece that I've really liked much more recent was the essay that Jiang Yangfan, the New Yorker writer, I don't know if you saw this, but it was a piece about how she and her mother had become the target of Chinese propagandists. But it's also a very personal piece about what it's like to be an immigrant in America. I thought that piece was just astonishing. It was so personal, but so well reported. Like reported personal essays don't always work, but she's such a gifted writer and she's such a granular writer. Like she really picks up details that very few other people pick up, that it made it not only just an effective piece as a reported essay, but a very affecting piece as well. Sorry, my cat. She's 20 years old. <laughs> Sorry about that. Oh, wow. she's, sometimes she'll just yell for no reason. Yeah. Is there any particular subject matter you read into or geek out about that isn't specifically related to your job? I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this. I really like 80s. <laughs> no, no, no. Like, okay, so I'm a child of the 80s. And so if there's some story about some 80s icon or whatever, like <laughs> Duran Duran or whatever, I'll definitely geek out about that. Otherwise... I'm really into East Asian cooking, and so I collect cookbooks and try out recipes, even if I can't get all of the ingredients in Athens. I did find numbing pepper from Szechuan. Did you pronounce that correctly? Yeah, Szechuan. So I was able to make Mapo tofu 
many times now since I found it. Yeah, I like experimenting with any food from various parts of East Asia, which is like also why I fell in love with Uyghur food because I ate it like as many times as possible when I was in Istanbul. And Summer John's mother-in-law also makes fresh Uyghur noodles, uh, spicy noodles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I miss the food in China so much. It was so good, and it's very I difficult bet. to find in Brazil. Uh, the next question is, how do you manage your work-life balance, or do you believe in it? Oh, gosh. I don't do a very good job because if I'm not working, I'm kind of worrying about various things related to work. <laughs> like, will the story work out or am I going to have to like fall on my face financially? You know, I think about long term, what's going to happen and is this pandemic going to wipe everything out for me? You know, th- those kinds of things. So I don't have much of a good work-life balance right now. But I would say that before the pandemic, I did. I felt like I was able to go and report and work on the stories that I needed to work on and finish them and then come back here and hang out with my friends and just not think about it and uh, go on a vacation once in a while. And the nice thing about Greece is that, you know, you can go pretty easily to like really beautiful places. (laughs) These islands are so nice, you know, so and the mountains in Greece are beautiful as well. But yeah, since the pandemic, I feel like it's all sort of mushed together and I don't go out as much as I used to. You know, it's harder to see friends. And so I'm getting a little bit depressed about the fact that I have no work-life balance because if I'm not working, I'm thinking about work, if that makes sense. But I believe work-life balance is the only way you can be healthy in this job, especially. This is a job that can consume you because journalists tend to be people who are workaholics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. The next question is, is Twitter important to you? I'm a retweeter. Okay, I want to put that out there. I retweet a lot of stuff, you know, like, oh, here's an interesting article to read or here's an interesting thought that I think is funny. And since the pandemic, I've been retweeting a lot more. I have to say I'm at home much more and I'm like on Twitter a lot. But I don't think I should be. I think that the people who are doing the best work are not on Twitter. <laughs> you know, Sarah Stillman, who's a New Yorker writer and who has a Twitter account, but I don't think she's ever tweeted, has done some extremely strong magazine work. And she doesn't have a presence on Twitter, but she's breaking new ground with her pieces. So I feel like it's a distraction. I, I need to not do it. The reason that I'm on Twitter is because I feel like it's also a way to keep track of what's happening in the news. But it's so easy to get sucked into Twitter. And it's also easy with Twitter to get sucked into this idea of like, how many followers do I have? How important am I? And the high of getting somebody to like your tweet or, you know, like that kind of silly stuff that means nothing. I have very mixed feelings about Twitter. I mean, I obviously am on Twitter, but I also don't think it's all that helpful for really substantive journalism. And then if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? Well, you know, Lucia Newman stole my answer, who was Oriana Falacci. <laughs> no, she didn't steal my answer. I'm just kidding. Oriana Falacci probably had the most interesting career that I know of. I would have loved to do all the interviews that she did. I've heard from people who didn't know her, Italian journalists, that she was very, very difficult and not the easiest person to get along with. So maybe no one would have liked me, I guess, if I traded places with her. <laughs> but she was, she was a really fantastic interviewer. And I actually still read her book, Interview with History, because I think if you read it, 
not only do you feel like you're there because she's so well prepared for these interviews, but it's amazing what she got people to admit. <laughs> it's like, wow, how did you do that, lady? She's somebody that I would have loved to have trade places with. Um, or Catherine Boo from The New Yorker. I don't know if you know her work, but she wrote the book, The Beautiful Forevers, which was about a slum in Mumbai. So maybe Catherine would be the, in lieu of Oriana Falaci, the one that I would want to switch careers with because... She has done something with her career that I think very few journalists have done, which is she writes about people who are poor in a way that does not exotify them and in a way that does not belittle who they are. It doesn't melodramatize who they are. They're just people and they're complicated and their lives are very complex and sometimes contradictory, just like ours. The only difference that they have in many cases is that they have fewer resources than the rest of us. And obviously the reporter who is privileged, but I feel like she set the standard for how to report on people who were not powerful and people who were poor, because it's a problem in this industry and how we report on poor people. It's become almost embarrassing how badly we do it. I mean, and some people like Hannah Dreyer is a wonderful reporter and she doesn't do that. And there are other reporters who are very good at portraying poor people in a very humane and human and human scale way. But Catherine was doing it back in the 1980s and 1990s and even back when she worked for the Washington Post. So I feel like she always got it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've read her book, Behind the Beautiful Forevers. I was actually just thinking about it now, earlier when you were talking about India. I just feel like that book, you know, we have a tendency as reporters, I don't know if you agree with me on this, but I feel like we have a tendency, especially as foreign correspondents, oh, the poor people that we're covering, they're so noble, the noble poor people. And it's so condescending. Because I don't feel like we're being honest when we portray people in that light. Because suffering may be noble if you're looking at it from far away, but it's not noble for the people who are suffering. So what you have to do is sort of break down all those walls that we've created over the years between ourselves as the more privileged reporter and then the person that we're reporting on, if they happen to be somebody who's poor... And just like, come on, person to person, just get over these ideas. And I felt like her book just did that so well. But her stories for The New Yorkers were all so very good and very relatable. And I still think about the people that she wrote about. And I can't say that about too many other people. The next question is, what do you think you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist? Oh, God. I feel like I'm in a job interview. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's a very job interview question. So... I think I am very mindful of the people I'm reporting about. I don't feel like I'm a pushover, but I feel like I'm very mindful of the fact that I'm reporting on human beings. And I feel like there's a sensitivity to my reporting that I value and I think that our listeners value and that my editors value. But I'm a very thorough reporter, too. You know, a lot of people think, oh, she's all emotion. But no, I over-report everything. The editors actually joke about it because they'll say, well, you know, I wish this piece of tape was here. And I'm like, I actually have it. Let me go get it, you know, because I interview people for so long. But I think that the quality that makes people respond to my stories and that I value in myself and that, I, like I said, I hope that my editors value as well, is that I never lose sight of the fact that a story only works if it's sensitive to the people, especially when you're reporting on people who are not powerful, okay? When we're reporting on people who are powerful and they hold all the cards, 
okay, fine, go at them full steam if you want. But I very rarely interview people who are super powerful. So, you know, Mary Louise Kelly interviewed Mike Pompeo. I did not. (laughs) And most of the people I interview have a lot to lose talking to a journalist. And so I'm very mindful of that. And I think that that comes across. And I try to present the person that I'm reporting on as comprehensively but as sensitively as possible. So I think that that's what I like in myself. So I'm not sure if it would nail me a job, but <laughs> but I feel like it's something that I like about myself and about my reporting. And then what is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, these questions. God, this is a really cynical thing to say, but I'm just going to say it because I hadn't really thought about this. Because I try Mm -hmm. not to think about what I would tell the younger version of myself. But I think I would tell myself not to be a freelance foreign correspondent. I think I would tell myself that you don't have the money to do this and it's okay to stay in the U.S. and work in a newspaper and have a life instead of getting consumed by, you know, the struggles of having to make a living and stay solvent on an international scale. Since I was a kid, I always wanted to see the world, and I thought this was the best way to do it. And to some extent, this is what's helped me, because I can't afford to travel to all sorts of places in the world. But on the other hand, it has consumed me in a way that I didn't expect, and it's consumed my personal life in a way that I hadn't expected. And I'm not sure if it was worth it at the end of the day. I'm not sure if it was worth it. You know, maybe our listeners would say, oh, we love your stories, blah, 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 but... Is it really worth it? I don't know. I just don't know. I'm somebody who also sees the people I interview who have families and who have hobbies. You know, they play the guitar, they paint, and I haven't really done any of those things. Okay, I cook. Okay, that's something that's a hobby of some kind. But it's not the full life that I expected for myself and that I wanted for myself. And I sacrificed a lot of personal goals because... I wanted to achieve professional goals, partly because I love this work. I love being a journalist. I absolutely love it. But I also felt I owed it to my dad and now to my mom because they were such cheerleaders of mine. I mean, my dad was like, you should become a lawyer or a doctor, like, you know, what they usually tell the kids because it's like much more stable or a veterinarian. I really wanted to become a veterinarian when I was really young. I love animals, <laughs> but I chose journalism and they supported me, even though they knew it was a difficult career, even though their family members were like, oh, journalism, isn't it sort of like being in show business? They like you one minute and they don't like you another. And actually in the broadcast world, that's really what it is. Sometimes they don't select you based on how good of a reporter you are. You're like, do we like your voice? Do you do you fit in with our image of who we want to be? I mean, and that's hard, you know, because you never know when you're going to be on the outs. So I think I would tell my younger self that it's okay not to have achieved your big overarching goal of being an international correspondent and that maybe you have to be realistic about what you can afford. I mean, I wish I would have done more research about how hard this was going to be. I sort of just did it without thinking. But on the other hand, you know, I've also accomplished a whole lot. And so I don't want to belittle that either. I don't know. No, I think about that a lot, how previously in my career up till now, I've always, it never even occurred to me not to prioritize my career and to look at the other aspects of my life and like take into account 
you know, I was really happy, for example, in Shanghai. Uh, I had a great community of friends and things like that, but that never, ever entered into my equation. I always thought career is the most important. Mm. I repeatedly left things behind without even thinking twice. And I'm a wow. bit like, you know, now we're living in Brasilia where we don't really have very many friends. And it's like, okay, the next move, we're going to move someplace. We know people and like, this is important. And yes, I'm doing good stories here, but that's by itself not enough anymore, at least. You know, I'm I'm, I'm glad with how things panned out. I I feel like if I had stayed in the U.S., uh, you know, I wouldn't have gotten to this point in my career. But yeah, I'm starting to feel the costs more. That's for sure. And everything, um, and I mean, every, uh, well, yeah, I mean, the pandemic hasn't <laughs> helped, you know, with all of our yeah. mental health, but, you know, it is a trade-off, isn't it? I mean, and every decision has its cost. So lately, especially since my mother died four years, or my mother and I were very close because after my dad died, she sort of became my friend, like my closest friend, because she was in really, really bad shape after my dad died. And psychologically, the three of us, my sister and I and my mom all helped each other. And, you know, I talked to her on the phone every day, no matter where I was in the world. And she retired here and we were finally hanging out like in the same country. It was great, you know, having not lived near her for so many years. And then she got cancer and within 10 months she was dead, even though the treatment initially seemed to be working and suddenly it wasn't. And it sort of changed my perspective on everything because losing my mom just feels, it feels so empty not to have that person to talk to who you used to talk to all the time, who used to cheer you up. He used to tear you away. Like she'd come over like with food she'd cooked at her house and she's like, okay, get off the phone. We're going to eat right now. You know, like, or she'd say, you're typing out your story. Okay, stop it right now and let's go for a walk. I mean, she'd come over from her house just to do that. And no one does that like your mom, right? <laughs> and no one cares about like nobody like injects herself into your life like your mom does. But after she died and she died so quickly and she was young, she was 70. I mean, but very youthful 70. I mean, my mom was just like a little kid. It really changed my perspective on what I had sacrificed because I had sacrificed a lot. And I just kept telling myself, if I work a little harder, I'll get to where I want to get. Yes, you do great work. And yeah, you're happy with what you did. And my friends in North Carolina are all proud of me. And they're like, oh, you're a famous NPR reporter now. But I was actually happier with them. (laughs) I was actually happier (laughs) spending my weekends hiking in the mountains in Western North Carolina and camping and going to the beach with them, going to the Outer Banks and having parties at my house. And we had a running club, the Amazons, <laughs> the Amazon.run. <laughs> and, you know, like I, would, I was running marathons with my friends. I was doing so many things I enjoyed that I gave up here because I was like, I made a decision now and I have to commit to it. So, yeah. Yeah, that's tough. Um, I think it's great that you worked in Myrtle Beach, though. That's awesome. (laughs) I ran a marathon there too with my marathon group, and I thought I just such a I I thought it was a riot. I think that place is a riot. I love it. Strange, strange, funny place with so many different. It's just you know so many things just colliding head on there, like from the biker rallies to the golfers. (laughs) The golfers who all go there to get away from their wives that, you know, so there's this whole like strip club thing going on, even though like it's supposed to be this family friendly place. And, you know, some parts of town are very sketchy. And then you've got, you drive like a few miles inland and it's like straight South Carolina. You're in the deep South. Like it's so many things. Yeah. 
just right up against I just each like, other. I know that the Carolinas are so singular, I think. I loved it there, but so there are also a lot of problems there that you see as somebody moving from a place where you didn't see those problems before, like in North Dakota, where there's like no racial diversity, obviously, or no people. <laughs> it's mostly cows there. And like in Raleigh, for example, I, when I first moved there, I was shocked at how segregated it was. I was like, wait a minute, why is the city so segregated? Why do all black Americans live in one part of town and all white Americans live somewhere? What, what the hell's going on? You know? And so I found that kind of stuff kind of jarring. Let's see. What is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists and why? Well, I mean, you've probably heard this before, but I love Spotlight. I actually watch it probably once a month. <laughs> I think I've seen it like 20 times. Huh. More than that, what am I saying? Probably 30 times at this point. I own it. And so I watch it. I mean, I know my a lot of my friends watch All the President's Men, but I find All the President's Men very male. <laughs> it's like very like offensive uh, yeah. in some ways, why like the way they treat women. And, and I know that's the way it was back then, but I'm just like, that's so irritating. It's a great movie and it's mm-hmm. got lots of suspense and everything. But I like Spotlight because I think more than any other film I've seen shows the low-key sort of unglamorous reality of what we do. A lot of what we do is look stuff up in documents. We research and it's laborious. We try to get people who don't want to talk to us to talk to us. <laughs> and it's hard. It's really hard. And I think that I feel that that movie portrays that very well and very subtly. And it also showed the effect of covering stories on the journalists themselves who are regular people, you know, living sort of middle-class lives in Boston. So that movie, I really like that movie a lot for those reasons. I don't know if that's a super common answer, but yeah. <laughs> I just love Spotlight. And whenever I'm stressed out or feeling really blue about my job, like, why am I doing this? I watch Spotlight. <laughs> I just feel better after I watch it. And so I think you know, you know, this is why we do it. And we do it so we can change something or change somebody's mind. Or it doesn't have to be a big, huge investigation like the Spotlight team. But you know, an article that we do can change somebody's mind about some piece of culture or some person or some type of person. And that's so important. And these days it seems like it's getting harder and harder to do that because everyone's so set in their ways and people are also reading a lot of, I don't want to use the word fake news, but people are reading news that's not verified or not real news, <laughs> just like sort of conspiracy theories. And that's really hard. I notice it in myself because I have friends and relatives back home who actually send me some of the conspiracy theories and say, have you looked into this? And I'm like, wow, <laughs> you know, like really surprised because I'm, I'm the journalist, right? And they're not reading the New York Times or the Washington Post or listening to NPR. They're like picking these things up from Facebook and, you know, wherever else they're, they're picking them up from. And that's troubling because you don't know how to counter that and say, well, that's not reported. Sometimes they don't know the difference. They don't know what we do. They don't understand that we actually go out and interview people. They haven't seen Spotlight. They don't know what goes into the work. And that's another reason that, that Spotlight's really good is because it sort of shows the work. You know, most reporters aren't in it for the glory. They're in it to illuminate something because the job itself is really hard work and it's not glamorous at all and it's hard it's uncomfortable right and then the final question is qualifications aside if you couldn't be a journalist what job would you do i would be a veterinarian (laughs) (laughs) take care Uh, of that cat that's screaming yeah that's my my 20-year-old cat Aspasia. she's from north carolina and it's time for her treat basically is that she's like hey you're way past treat time 
Yeah, I mean, I, I've always liked animals. I think that it would have been a heartbreaking job because you have to do a lot of like put animals asleep and you can't save all the animals. But I think I would have liked that job for the most part. I know it's hard to get through vet schools, but I didn't consider it that seriously. I talked about it a lot, mostly because I liked all kinds of animals, but that's it. <laughs> that's a good answer. That's very different from journalism. So I'll just wrap up then by saying thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking to me. It was a real pleasure, Jake. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Joanna Kakissis, a correspondent for NPR in Athens, Greece. I'll post links to some of Joanna's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a five-star rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a positive review saying what you like about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, November 29th. Until then... I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.